This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio and Counterculture. I am Marie and my co-host for Media Matters is Marty Gibson. Marty, we've had a lot of fat to chew over with the budget. We chewed over a bit with Cam and Paul on Friday. Here we are again. And, of course, over the weekend, the post-mortems all came out, all the obituaries, depending on which way you wanted to look at it. I found it really intriguing to see who thought what and where over what was essentially a budget that was exceptionally dull. Yeah, hi, Marie. It was almost seemed deliberate. Well, I mean, it was deliberately so, the old... Uh... Bread and butter budget. The analysis of it, the focus, seemed pretty muddle-headed. But you know, we've talked before about the uh, innumeracy of, of reporters, and uh, the horsepower didn't seem to be there in the main body of the paper to analyse it. I couldn't help but feeling the whole tone of the budget was whoever decides strategy in Labour. They've said to Hipkins and Robertson. These are the people you need to appeal to. These are the votes. Q&A this morning, there was a discussion between Fran O'Sullivan and Sue Moroni. They'd said, you know, this is aimed at women. I'm not going to throw stones in that glass house, but they're certainly not wrong. I mean, there was a lot there for women and they were all issues that primarily from a financial perspective, women take care of. I mean, they are looking after uh, the families are the ones often taking the kids to the doctor. So the prescription charges, they're the ones that are organising to get the kids to school. They're the ones that are... Well, they're the ones that respond to the we're kind thing, which I've waffled on about endlessly, that why National allow Labour to hold on to that? And then no sooner have Labour laid little trap for them with the removal of the $5 pharmacy surcharge, Luxon and Willis just jump on it like eels into a hinaki. You've said this before, I mean, duff hands on that. I mean, Luxon had to wheel back Willis's comments on that, you know, saying that, no, we would make it a more targeted approach. Did you see what Joyce's comments were on that, which I thought were just on the money? Gosh, I missed that, As usual, he's the guy who... It's just the right kind of note in terms of detail, but accessibility and and just having a a good appraisal of of the situation. Well, as he Um, said in his piece in the uh, Herald on Saturday, the initiatives in this budget are the sorts of things that you dig out of the bottom drawer when you can't think of what else to do. The prescription charges, for example, sure, some people won't have to pay $5 for their scripts anymore, but a big chunk of people weren't paying it anyway. Government boosters point to low-income people, but they already don't pay. They point to heavy users of medication, but their costs are capped. In the large parts of the country, the, the aggressive new pharmacy players mean that they don't pay either. This initiative is largely a tax cut for the chemist warehouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I had a chat to a uh, a pharmacist this morning who said, well, National have lost the pharmacists' votes. That's um, the predatory tactic that the chemist warehouse has used to close, and they've stated their aim is to close down local pharmacies. And you can be assured that once they've done that, the prices will go right up. The other thing I found interesting around the dropping of this $5 
rate for prescriptions is it also bases this massive assumption that these people are able to get to the GPs to get a script in the first place. I mean, I would have felt vastly more comfortable around funding to increase GPs or a funding for new immigrant doctors to come in on a bonded type scheme into rural and provincial areas in order to help GPs instead of areas like Murupara where they have to fly up doctors out of the deep south in order to to keep things going. It just seemed to me like peanuts for the monkey grinder, that kind of feel. Again, you know, we have to caution ourselves not to assume that they've tried to do the best thing for New Zealand and and failed. Uh, they're trying to do the, the best thing to keep Team Red in charge of Treasury. Do you feel that the budget was aimed to appeal to all of those voters that in 2020 switched from blue to red and they want to hold on to them? Yeah. I mean, as I said, the aim is to win the election and uh, they don't care if our grandchildren are saddled with ruinous debt, you know, and we're all in a big tax trap. The principal economist at Infometrics, Brad Olson, says interest rates may rise because the budget creates an extra $20 billion hole compared to earlier forecasts with the government saying it intends to spend $9.4 billion more over the next four years and earn $10.7 billion less. And this kind of twisting their hair into pigtails and, well, you know, we're just going to have to raise interest rates. I mean, what are the odds that the bankers win? You know, pretty good, it seems, you know, especially now where entering the usual phase where money supply is being tightened after being pretty liberal and um, they're turning fake money into real real estate as they jack interest rates up, you know, from 2.5 to 6.5. So, you know, most homeowners are going to be paying tens of thousands of dollars more on their annual mortgage repayment than they did a year or two ago. And they're going to be spending an extra thousand dollars a year on food as the as the calculation. Tracy Watkins, uh, you know, she wasn't it wasn't really analysis, but I thought it summed up the just the blah nature of the of the budget. She said, if Labor looks fresh out of ideas for the challenging times we're in, National is not offering much more. It seems equally determined to stick it to its bread and butter, trotting out tired old tropes. It has been trotting out for a decade or more about budget blowouts, higher taxes, boogeyman, and law and order. Is it simply that after a couple of decades of crisis and change, earthquakes, the global financial crisis, COVID, and now devastation wreaked by climate change, governments and oppositions have had to be constantly reactive, transformation being a luxury for another time? Or is transformation just too risky politically these days when winning seems an end goal in itself? That was her editorial in the Sunday Star Times. Andrea Vance sort of touched on a little bit on hers too. While Hipkins is camped firmly in the centre ground. Really? Yeah. Right. Okay. Warmed by the embers of his policy bonfire, Lux and et al are scrapping over votes with the wrong team. National is allowing ACT to drag it further to the right. The miserly medicines policy, two-for-one farming regulations revocation, originally a Rodney Hyde idea, ups to Rodney, scrapping the firearms registry, resurrecting live export shipping, the revival of the no-clause rental terminations, youth crime boot camps, and its war on the Wellington bureaucracy. These recent policies seem firmly pitched at the groans swell, yes, she wrote that, groan swell demographic, older, male, rural and reactionary. Odd, really, because these voters are National's traditional base. 
Their support, or it should already be banked. If some have drifted away to act, National should be grateful. Better David Seymour than Winston Peters. I think that that's a rather large assumption, don't you? Mm. Yeah, and you know, it's worth understanding Marxism, or at least knowing the lexicon of it. The word reactionary is used to refer to those who oppose the glorious communist revolution. So whether or not she understands that and is using it deliberately or whether she's just so steeped in it that it's just like um, a fish breathing water. The way she closed that uh, with the saying, the trouble is National is only listening to its rusted on support in the golf and rotary clubs of New Zealand. These supporters are telling it what it wants, not needs to hear. If National stops fighting with ACT for a 5% vote share on the right, it might just secure the extra 5% it needs to roundly beat Labour. And that's true. I mean, this is something else we've talked about in terms of Chris Luxon's just failure to remember the features tell, benefits sell maxim. They're still talking about the economy. They're still talking about money. The money doesn't matter. And then the next breath said the money is important. And so it just feeds into that left trope all national cares about is money pitching themselves as at, at war with even gangs rather than you know taking a more compassionate angle again feeds right into that nervousness that middle new zealand has that we're going to see another ruth richardson austerity i guess is is the word one of the other pieces that i picked up on and again look we shouldn't bog ourselves down in this too much they're all big on promises and announcements and not really big on delivery. So we have to, I think, listeners, we just need to take this with a grain of salt. But another one that I had a little chuckle around was the 300 um, new classrooms that they mm. are promising. Well, where are they going to find 300 new teachers from, just saying? Or are they going to be cutting up these huge, big, open-plan classrooms and actually creating proper classrooms like they should have all along? But I thought to myself, well, where are the kids coming from? Where are the kids coming from? So I actually jumped on and did a little bit of a look at the birth rate. And the current birth rate in the New Zealand is 12.2 births per thousand people. That's right. where it's at, currently 2022. That is less than half than what it was in 1950. Now, the thing to remember about that is that those who were born in 1950 are going to be drawing super. And theoretically, there's going to be two of those for every one child born in this country. So they are talking about building classrooms, but interestingly enough, there was nothing anywhere here in this budget that were appealing to that group of people, which is a vastly bigger number of people than you know the two-year-old uh, education fund. And again, I don't know where they're coming from. Like, where, where are these kids coming from? So it is... As you said, they're playing around with places that they know are safe. They're trying to hit the dinks, the mum and dad and two kids, well, one and a half these days, isn't it? Yeah. When you read the newspaper, you're looking at as much at what's not being said as what's being said. The, the precipitous drop in birth rate, the precipitous drop in male fertility, testosterone, it, it just doesn't feature. And you'd think it would be bigger news generally. And the aim, you know, that we can putty it up with immigration really is almost a tacit admitting that we're a society in, in decline and potentially about to collapse. 
sounds dramatic, but if you if you look at the unwin pattern for society, civilizational collapse, once you've taken the uh, stigma off premarital sex, you've got three generations, and once uh, societies go into decline, they don't recover. Yeah, that's that's always something to think about. The good news is, and I think this is where I think and where I'd you know, like for us to be talking about a bit, is during those collapses, there's always a parallel culture that rejects the behaviours that creep in, the, the mindless pleasure-seeking, the, the abandonment of logic. There's a, there's a group of people who abandon that and form the seed of the renewed culture. So maybe we're that, the media representation of that. I'd like to think so. The, uh, we can only hope. I think on the budget, the last word, we'll give the last word to Stephen Joyce. It's a barren budget, bereft of ideas and showing no willingness to seriously address the country's issues. So at least it achieves one thing. Now you know beyond any doubt that if you want to change, you will need to use the ballot box. Yeah, no, he, he excoriated uh, Grantie in this, didn't he? Where does all this money go, given that it's patently not coming back to New Zealanders in the form of tax reductions? or better services. The minister himself says nearly 80% of it is to pay for cost pressures in the public sector. No new or improved services, mind, just more money for the public service to keep doing what it is already doing, which appears to be overseeing a decline in education, health and public safety. I'm sure the public will be comforted to know that at least their servants in Wellington are being fully protected from the ravages of inflation. Treasury now expects government expenditure to grow nearly 20% more in the next four years, on top of 60% growth in the last five. To cover that, net government debt is now apparently going to peak at 43% of our economy next year, up from 20% five years ago. As I've said, you know, if you give a Marxist student politician a credit card, it's no surprise when they're not responsible with it. None whatsoever. Uh, before we dive off politics into uh, another little uh, feud, which I think is much more entertaining, I bought the local rag, actually, so you wouldn't have seen this, but uh, Labour chooses a candidate for Napier because, of course, Stuart Nash is departing after his term is complete. And to be fair, he has been MIA. I mean, no one has seen him pretty much since the uh, Since the shuffle. incident. Yes, since the, yes, the tech-cident. Incident. Uh, they have announced. So guess what they went for for Napier? What sort of candidate they Okay, went for? let me guess. Statistically, I mean, the most common occupation in the Beehive at the moment is ex-teacher, followed by union organiser. I actually like playing a game of this with my wife when the Labour announced a new candidate. I, okay, it's going to be a teacher. I think the last one was uh, teacher and union organiser, so double on the bingo. Who was it? Right. Well, it is somebody called nowhere near. Actually, it is someone called Mark Hutchinson. Mark has he's a local. He returned back to New Zealand uh, and set himself up in business in Napier. But this is what you need to know. So obviously Napier has a has a type. So we've had Stewie since 2014. And we got Stewie after the vote was split. He won by 3,850 votes over Wayne Walford. What they don't tell you is that Wayne Walford and Garth McVicar both combined had nearly double the number of votes that Stuart Nash had. So it was a split 
vote. And I know I brought it up on Friday and I'm going to bring it up again because I believe we have the potential, we have all the ingredients for this to happen again in this country in Northland. So I, mm. I'm just putting that out there. So that's how long we've had Stewie for. But that's okay because Stewie lets us know that I've known Mark for a long time. He's a success. He's a successful businessman. So there's a change. He's worked with some of the country's top leaders and he has skills and competencies and the capability to dive in and get work done, he said. Since returning to New Zealand in 2009, he has consulted across a range of industries with clients like Trust Power, Fonterra, Chorus, New Zealand Post, Waka Kotahi, Mercury Energy and Fletcher Building. And he's now managing director of a Napier-based Divergent & Co, which he established in 2016. He's essentially Nashi Part 2, another good-looking 50-something white mm. guy, which I <laughs> is so I think cool. he at least would have formerly been a woman or something like that. Well, is he shaping no, himself up as a future leader of the renewed Labour Party after it all burns to the ground, do you think? Or Imagine someone looking at what they've done in the past couple of years with that kind of business pedigree and saying, I want to be a part of that. Hutchinson is the sort of candidate that honestly I would have expected National to put up or act mm. even. But here we go. Here he is with Labour. Uh, we'll be running, he says, a full-on grassroots campaign. I can't wait to get out there, meet people and businesses across the electorate. Now, I bring that piece up because, as I mentioned before, with how they've done the budget, obviously the policy strategy for Labour this election is bread and butter, back to basics, grassroots. I think they've actually realised that they can't carry on this ideological pathway that they've been down and they're wanting to sort of bring things back to the middle. But you know what? I don't know about you. Gaslighting much? I mean, really, <laughs> do you think people will buy that? Yes. Well, the other thing is, do you really think that the strategy for what they're going to do originates in Chris Hipkins? You know, I mean, this is another thing that never comes up in the paper. Chris Hipkins, World Economic Forum, young global leader. Jacinda Ardern, World Economic Forum, Forum, young global leader. And I mean, I used to torture myself by thinking about the phone calls that um, she must have had with Klaus Schwab, you know. Oh, you know, Jacinda, all revolutionary leaders, you know, uh, nobody understands in the time, you know, in time you will be viewed as a great visionary leader of your country <laughs> and I could just imagine her doing her prayer full eyes to the sky as if getting divine inspiration oh yes it is really hard being a leader the cynical part of me wonders whether they're limping along with nationals leader at minus 14 percent yeah, net likability you know? or whatever it is yeah yeah because I mean if you really were running the national party the way you know you, you, you hope they are, you'd be able to cobble together a strategy that would differentiate you from Labour better than they have. Start by doing what it says on the box and just getting a bit of national focus, right, rather than global Marxist socialist utopia. Well, what's essentially the neo-feudalism that the World Economic Forum are looking for and these guys de-armed us and are just pushing us, uh, the avant-garde, pushing us towards. I just fear that National is going to fall into the trap that they believe 
in order to appeal to the so-called in inverted commas middle voters that they will they play the the labor game they look at the budget that's just been announced and they try and counteract that with more of the same but with a slight national spin when the reality of it is is they need to do the complete opposite i mean they're losing core voters uh, across to act but i think more than that there is a growing number of kiwis who are just they just want to feel that a representative for them is going to be relatively authentic gets the problems that they are facing every day and says it's all right mate yeah we know what that's like we're going to sort it or this is what we see this is what we're going to try and do come along for a ride with us and that's just not luxon there was the same mistake that the australian liberal party made in the last election they were trying to appeal to these effete greeny voters in um in the leafy suburbs in sydney and completely dropped the ball over appealing to their core support and in the end all those voters went to the teals as well who are essentially the greens tentacle reaching out to drag all those voters left hmm. well let's move from stormy weather in politics to stormy weather of another kind yeah the revelation that ours is the only country in the world with two government funded meteorological agencies competing with each other on our dime. I know and there it looks like there is going to be muskets before dawn. There is certainly quite a ruction going on between Niwa and the Met Service. Government is seeking official advice about New Zealand's weather forecasting systems amid industry fears and conflict between the Met Service and Niwa and concerns that the public has been fed confusing and mixed messages. Met Service itself has spoken out saying that in severe weather events it should be the agency Kiwis are relying upon. In major storms such as the recent deadly cyclone Gabrielle, Met Service and Niwa will issue their own forecasts and data, sometimes with different information and presentation formats. Media outlets will often choose between the two or even publish both. In an interview, the chief executive of the privately owned agency Weatherwatch, Philip Duncan, said Niwa uses foreign terms of what he calls the ridiculously overused phrase atmospheric, atmospheric river. river. I think that we use very Americanized terms, which are big, loud, and get them into the news. Now, I know that you've done a bit more of a deep dive on this. This caught my eye as well. To me, I'd always thought that NIWA was more of a research arm, but they appear to be hitting the Met Services patch, and the Met Service doesn't like it. So what have you found out in your little investigations on this? Well, I mean, I've always, as I've mentioned before, I, I studied earth sciences in uh, the early 90s, and I had a couple of lecturers give us a very detailed breakdown on the hypothesis that anthropogenic CO2 was a driver for climate change. You know, both of them saying, look, it accounts for about 5% of, of the effect. Most of it's water. Uh, it's like painting a window. Once... Um, you paint on the first layer, it has most of the effect, and subsequent layers have declining effect. Temperatures started rising before CO2 and many times in the fossil record, so it's not causative, etc., etc. So, I mean, that, that provided me with a background that made me somewhat more jaundiced looking at all this stuff. And as I said, you know, I was a journalist, and, and Al Gore's hockey stick graph uh, was coming out. I was able to say, well, look, that doesn't include 
the medieval warm period, which was warmer than now, or the Minoan warm period, uh, which was much warmer than now. So it's probably not going to happen. The other thing that that article said about uh, NIWA's, they use automatic forecasts with no intervention by professional meteorologists. They often offer conflicting advice. Uh, and with the climate change focus, um, NIWA often using sensational language. And so, yeah, Philip Duncan says NIWA had been putting out some very big press releases over the years, and many of them haven't panned out. Now, what the way you can read that is, you know, all of these big headlines about climate change generally come from computer models. And you can make computer models say whatever you want. Uh, very little of it has come from actual measurements. And the thing that jumped out at me in all this, and it was a very big article, was there wasn't a single mention of Ian Wishart's recent revelation. I don't know if you are familiar with this, that NIWA has ignored many worse weather events than Cyclone Gabrielle, even when they were saying it's the worst recorded event. And these are getting more frequent due to climate change. Completely ignored this barometric record, generally taken by uh, sailors who stake their lives on it being correct, so it's very accurate, that showed that going right back into the 1800s, there'd been much bigger low-pressure systems than Bola or Gabriel, and they'd come more frequently. That piece was absolutely fascinating, and if people haven't caught up with that, I know Paul Brennan discussed it with Ian uh, in the first few days of Reality Check Radio, so I do really strongly recommend that you hunt that out in the replays. I actually listened to, a couple of days ago, the piece done in Greenwashed with Don Nicholson and Jaspreet Boparai, and they interviewed Professor Ian Plymer out of Australia, and he said very much exactly what you were saying in terms of the climate warming and the information that isn't always particularly correct. And he mentioned water vapour, and I know that that's something that you've mentioned before. Everyone, he says, focuses on CO2 and to a lesser extent on methane. He said, but the number one driving force in adverse weather events particularly is water vapour, and no one is talking about water vapour. And do you know what drives water vapour? Big volcanoes going off in the Pacific the Ocean as a start. Uh, yep. Yeah. And the volcanoes don't help, but it, it's, it, it's primarily the sun has a big effect on it. You know, it's all handy for climatards like James Shaw to want to borrow and then sacrifice tens of billions of dollars, sacrifice hundreds of thousands of acres of productive land and rural, rural communities to the climate fairies. But, you know, even worse than that, you know, this obtuse fudging of data to suit the narrative has resulted in a lot of housing developments on floodplains that should never have been built there because they were sort of built to withstand a one in a hundred year flood that lo and behold is a one in ten year flood you know and this is now playing to that agenda to get people into these world economic forum 15 minute cities and so you've been hearing even in maori publications oh you know our people are going to have to uh, undergo a managed retreat it's not an error it's disinformation, but Kate Hanna seems oddly silent about it. I heard an, a subsequent interview with Ian Wishart, and he said he put it to the National Party, put it to the media, but they've been absolutely silent on it. You know why? It's a huge story with tens of billions of dollars of implications. Yeah, this is the gaslighting. It is. I think you're right. It is gaslighting on a massive scale. 
And there is this almost this pitch battle on who owns the truth on climate. I loved one of the lines in the article I had, because there was a couple of articles on this, is the Met Service was in adverted commas, the single authoritative voice for severe weather. The government pays us to deliver severe weather warnings. This is in line with the World Meteorological Organization expectations that to avoid confusion, each of the 193 member countries and territories will be very clear on which one of their meteorological agencies is the single authoritative voice for severe weather warnings. If you're Philip Duncan, he must be sitting there with the popcorn loving all of this. Mm. Well, I mean, it's a pitch battle in those minor areas. But remember that for years we've had that science is settled mantra. And I noticed note that further in the paper, there was another climate alarmist article citing Australian National Science Agency, CSIRO, which insists that climate change has been directly affecting the strength and frequency of El Nino and La Nina events as far back as 1960. Now, he belongs to the IPCC, which are only focused on identifying and verifying the anthropogenic climate change hypothesis. In much the same way as the Ministry for Women are only focused on jobs for the girls and injustice against them. It's not scientific, and it has a similar effect to a ship having a jammed rudder. I mean, it's a chaotic system that is virtually impossible to predict with any accuracy. But there's a thought among psychologists that people self-sabotage so their lives are at least predictable, if miserable. And I wonder if people prefer wrecking our economy and terrorizing children into buying the climate change hysteria rather than facing down the complexities of arguments about what an incredibly complex and chaotic system will do. You know, you go further into the paper and you can hear... These young people, uh, an opinion by India Logan Riley, who says she's a Maori, Wahini Maori uh, climate justice organizer at Action Station and was a recipient of the 2021 Bright Award for Environmental Conservation from Stanford University. And she says, by now, any climate harm is by design thanks to mediocre policy and bad budgets. This lack of cohesive, ambitious Leadership puts a strain on our young people. Two weeks after the cyclone, I asked a room full of young people at a school in Hastings to raise their hands if they felt hopeful about the future. Not a single one did. The students looked around, nodding with each other as they got present to the situation we find ourselves in. Emissions aren't going down. Material hardship and corporate profiteering are going up. It's terrible telling kids this. And I mean, you had no show without punch. You had your mate, Janil Lal who said, as climate change revs its engine, climate disasters will increase in frequency and severity, and more New Zealanders will be affected by harm. But the most idiotic remark of all, I thought, was James Shaw's after the budget, where he said, we haven't spent what we needed to prevent climate change happening. My God. And this guy, like the guy who's in charge of Met Service, has got no training in climatology at all, not even science. Illusions of grandeur, much? How climate change? It is. It's an is. It's not. It's not a tap that you can turn on and off, James. Well, by borrowing money, and, and isn't it amazing? The solutions always more that money. We we get uh, someone to print well, by one estimate in the listener a few years ago seventy billion dollars this decade, 
Internationally, I see there's beginning to be some blowback, particularly up in the Northern Hemisphere around, in the UK, I think, some pushback on all the net zero policies now and things are starting to sort of bite there. The problem, of course, we have down here is we're always the last one to arrive at the party. So I just can see a lot more intervention and confusion and a wasted money preventing things in the name of climate and what is actually achieved in any of it. I mean, it just cracks me up that in the budget they've labelled it cyclone recovery and they're hoping to become the great panacea and heroes for those roads and the Coromandel and West Auckland here in Hawke's Bay who have been adversely affected, building new bridges, putting things back to how they need to be when all of those were already on the books and got scrapped by this government anyway until Mother Nature stepped in and actually forced the issue. Mm. But, you know, that gets popped down the memory hole, doesn't it? Well, as Voltaire said, uh, Marie, truly whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. As I've felt more and more uneasy understanding that the malinformation in in the paper and uh, from politics it is deliberate and I've been reading some of Hannah Arendt's quotes as well. You know, she was the lady who wrote um, about the Nazis and coined the phrase, the banality of evil, which, you know, I think about old sausage roll eating Chris Hipkins, just such a harmless little fella, but what he's presided over, you know, and you think about the real deaths that have likely occurred as the data emerges from what he's done. It's a pretty good description of of those guys. Mm. It just and and the, that's been a strategy of just getting people who you think, well, what's what are they going to do? But they're middle managers. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. So all that contradictory data is right there, but people just sort of aren't interested in it. Uh, and another thing she said, there is a strange interdependence between thoughtlessness and evil. She is certainly was one of the great thinkers that came out of that period post-World War II. And if you, uh, and I know Matthias Desmet based a lot of his theory on mass formation on the work of Hannah Arendt, and it is, and it's certainly worth reading. If you haven't read The Psychology of Totalitarianism, it is an outstanding book. And it's not a big read, it's a pretty easy read. And that's it's just- It's chilling though, isn't it? As you <sighs> recognise so much of it. And we flatter ourselves that we're so much more enlightened but all those niches are still there mm. the the crowds forming around witches being burnt for witches you know the witch finder generals they're all there they haven't gone away no well human human nature is human nature and that will be one thing that never never ever changes this is media matters of course with marie here and marty gibson on counterculture on reality check radio and so we're taking a look at what has been some of the news of the past week. So what else have you got on your list? Well, I spoke with a fellow who has started selling fog cannons the other day. And he said it's incredible going into these stores, how they say, oh, yeah, my dairy's been hit three times last week, the level of crime that um, shop owners are facing. And it was interesting to watch. I watched Q&A, um, and the police minister since March, Ginny Anderson, was uh, being asked about the 
crime statistics seemed pretty out of her depth. I mean, it would be a hard thing to front because she Paula Bennett rolled out some good figures in her articles. Ram raids are up 500% since 2018. Anderson said that Ram raids are continuing to trend downwards, ignoring that there were 51 Ram raids in March this year, up by 24% on the month before. Violent crime has jumped 33% since 2017. Police statistics report that there were 292 retail crime incidents every day in 2020. That's a lot of crime. There is a 61% increase in gang members in real numbers. That is 300 more on the national gang list in the past two months. And again, you know, I'm a bit blackpilled. This isn't an accident. Governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more powerful government. And gangs fit that bill nicely. She used the word gaslight, you know, as, as National have, but probably... Um, not, not as I use it, which is that the whole thing's theatre. And if you point out that it is, you, you get a label slapped on you and you get separated from the herd, which... Um... Well, that is actually the true meaning. The true meaning of gaslighting is when you know something to be true and when you question it, they came, come back with a fiction or, a, as you said, a theatre to try and convince you that what you actually know is true is wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this government, they have been running a masterclass in gaslighting, especially in this term. It's funny you should mention that I drove past uh, one of the local dairies. As I drove past, I noticed, you know, and this is a, it's on a corner, it's quite a new building, so a lot of glass, huge big plywood up on the glass. And I thought, there you go. I bet yeah. that's had a car through it and the little corner dairy literally at the end of my street here has been ram raided three times in the last six months. I was copied in on um, a series of text messages between retired policemen and uh, from harder policing days. Uh, one of them sent me a uh, an article about a brutal mongrel mob incident outside Palmerston North Cafe uh, where a mongrel mob funeral procession was stopped and they got out and just beat the tar out of two people in front of a coffee club. And the comment was uh, from this ex-policeman, once again, the gutless police were nowhere to be seen. The bleep, cowardly bleeps. Here I am referring to the police. Why weren't they shadow patrolling them? You know why they weren't? Because they're scared of them. I believe the day New Zealanders arm themselves is not too far away. You cannot depend on the police. They were probably all at some rest home tasing a 95-year-old female with dementia. They need to sack the current commissioner of, of police. This is where the buck stops. And another one said, yep, we're a shadow of our formal, former self. Almost all female police do not wish to engage, and more males now are so wimpy. You're probably right about cowardice. Yeah. Yeah, it is certainly concerning. And, and I mean, what you're referring to, I think that was in New South Wales, was it not? A uh... Yeah. 95-year-old, I think, obviously, with dementia, got a little bit loose and free with a walker and they tased her. I mean, really? 45 kilos. Apparently, the yeah, the, the uh, body cam images uh, are, are not flattering to the cops. Yeah, those uh, crimes have real chilling impact. And in order to be a prosperous society, you need to be a high-trust society. So when trust starts declining, everything starts going downhill. And that starts at the top. When the social contract is broken between those that you've elected in governance yep. and yourself, it's just all downhill from there. And that social contract was broken about four years ago. And again, 
what National's missing in all this are the people who are suffering most from these scroats and scumbags running amok are poor New Zealanders living in tough neighbourhoods. I think there's probably been a, a message to um, the police to crack down on um, kids who go up and down the streets doing wheelies and burnouts on trail bikes in Manarewa. I was talking to a policeman who's down there and he was infuriated. He said, we've been told not to arrest them because it's dangerous and the, the residents just hate us because they've, you know, they've got no respect for us because they see us as too soft to do anything about these law and order issues. You wouldn't have heard just uh, just before the segment, I interviewed Kelly Valudos, and she is uh, an educator, and she was talking about how she taught in Rotorua in a Desai One school, and we were talking around some of the ideological impacts on curriculum that is happening at the moment, and I asked her, well, when you were teaching at that school, were these kids particularly concerned about gender identity or pronouns and, and the like. And she was like, no, of course they're not. They've got bigger things to fry when you're in that social situation. And that's the other side of it. I mean, it is ideologically, this is all from a place of affluence. And the ones that need the help the most are the ones that have been shat on from a great height, supposedly there in a position to help them. But as you've said before, you know, if we fall into the trap of believing that that is actually the purpose, when actually, is it really the purpose? Is that? Well, I've got a theory about this, Marie. <gasps> I've got a theory about why we're not allowed to criticize transgenderism at all. I think the reason we're not allowed to cast any aspersions on transgenderism as being anything but normal and healthy is so we don't start talking about how xenoestrogens in industrial products and food are wrecking our endocrine system. And getting back to that thing of, you know, why are sperm counts just plummeting? Why is fertility plummeting? You know, if we start saying, hey, why are all these boys suddenly wanting to be girls? I mean, it's happening to frogs. If we started doing that, it, it probably uh, would lead to a, a whole string of things being unraveled that are being hidden from us at the behest of advertisers and again, bankers. Speaking of advertisers, I got something sent to me the other day, and I've seen photographs of this now, Target in the US, which is a big retailer, like the warehouse, right? For Pride oh. Week coming up, uh, have released a series of clothing, and part of this clothing is underwear and swimwear, which all have tuck pockets in them to tuck, Oh, my you know, God. Really? I know, to tuck the little silly sausage away. But then, to be fair, Addie Day, they put out their new line of women's uh, Pride swimwear, modelled by a man with, and I mean, I'm assuming that they're claiming that either this is someone who is gender fluid or identifies as a woman, but needless to say, this was a man with his full meat and potatoes downstairs. There was absolutely no breasts to speak of whatsoever. It was seriously the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen. You know, they'll be celebrating that as just such wonderful progress. Whether or not it's a, another Bud Light, go woke, go broke thing, but again, it's not being done for commercial reasons, and it's, it's that repositioning of culture downstream from politics. 
Yeah. Speaking of go woke, go broke, did you see Disney had to uh, pull the pin on its very posh Star Wars themed hotel mm. a little over a year after it opened? Jada Pinkett Smith's Cleopatra, the lowest ever rating Netflix show. And I think it was also Rotten Tomato score was like zero 1%. or something. One percent. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is where the fact that we're engaging in all this stuff and talking about it, we've got so much to do. The the people who are resistant to the programming, as Huckleberry Finn said, that there ain't no time to swap knives. You know, we've got a big job to start at least making sure that we've got a culture that's going to survive this one riding it all the way down. Well, that's okay, because if you are in the United States, dope shops get fungal. Cannabis dispensaries in Los Angeles are selling magic mushrooms amid a statewide push by some Democrats to decriminalise the potent hallucinogen. Cannabis has been legal for recreational use in California since 2018, and some cities have since relaxed their laws on the psychoactive plants and fungi. Illicit dispensaries are now taking advantage of high demand for magic mushrooms, whose active ingredient psilocybin, which research suggests can help treat post-traumatic stress disorder. In the past six months, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has served about 50 search warrants at dispensaries. Democrats in Sacramento, the state capital, are attempting to decriminalise magic mushrooms to align California with the likes of Oregon and Colorado. Um, Joe Rogan will be delighted. He's well, the heartbreaking um, article, I think, in the Sun in the Herald Weekend, um, Herald on Sunday, sorry. Uh, about suicide and saying that, um, you know, that the extremely high suicide rates among tradies and uh, mm. you know, had a guy who almost committed suicide, you know, saying how he was drinking two bottles of wine a night. Booze is the most overrated antidepressant. It's, and, you know, booze is what allows us to stay asleep. It, it enables us to, uh, keep pushing down those things we know aren't right. And that's why we're allowed to just go to any corner shop or go to, you know, supermarket and buy such a harmful drug. The soma of our times. Yeah. If you, if you get too many people on mushrooms, um, mm. it's not going to do government any good. Do people some good. Now, have you got anything else in uh, your pile before we finish up? I don't really. It was, you know, as another high fibre week of munching away. I just had one last little one for us, for you and I. Go on. Go on. Go on. Our good old friend, the Gisborne Herald. Oh. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, The Gisborne Herald this month reduces its number of publication days from six to five, Tuesdays to Saturdays. It now also is being printed by the NZ Herald owner, NZ Me, and its Ellerslie Presses and trucked to Gisborne each day, which upsets my parents greatly, by the way. According to my mother, the quality of the actual paper itself isn't as good and she can't use it quite like she used to once she'd finished reading it. So that's from Mother Busky. Well, this is a momentous change for us, we anticipate that the most noticeable change for our readers will be the addition of colour on every page. Gisborne Herald Managing Director Michael Muir said earlier this month. I'll always have a great affection for the Gisborne Herald. You know, I I loved working there. Sometimes I I was probably a pain in the ass, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm sure John Jones loved you every single moment you were there. (laughs) 
I, I think he uh, he often shook his head in wonder. But um, <laughs> the ease with with which they took the public interest ju- journalism fund and just trotted out the party line and blocked anything that contradicted it, while giving free column inches to people who just are manifestly crazy really didn't do them any favours. Well, I don't know what it's been like when you've gone back to see your family, but when I go back to see mine, and of course my parents still still subscribe, as I'm sure your Mm. dad probably does as well, and you go home and I pick the paper up and I read it. You were talking before about how much of the content with the weekend's papers is high fibre. I find much of the content in the Gisborne Herald these days is very much candy floss. There's a reason that the... DHB and the council and the iwi uh, advertise so much in the paper. It's not necessarily for the advertising itself. It to provide a pressure point if um, the message isn't agreeable to them. Mm. And uh, I know that during the treaty settlements, I wrote one or two stories that got canned after a a uh, call from the lawyers that Kitty Allen worked at. It's there sad that go. the printing. Uh, has moved because yeah, those, the guys in the printing room were always uh, really uh, good value. Yeah, nice, and it's just sad. It's just yeah. another one of those entities that have centralised away from the provinces. And I think, you know, places like that, it's always important to maintain those locations. We're probably not doing them any favours either because I've been going through more reality check radio content lately, and it's awesome. It's yeah. really, really high-quality interviews really, really timely, good quality information. When you put it next to the pallid, amoral bleating of the sheep in legacy media, it just makes that look terrible. And if anyone wants to find any of that content that Marty is talking about, it's quite simple. Just go to Radio. Click on the replays tab and there you will find lovely big tiles for what have been the highlight of the week. But also too, you can pick certain shows that you like. So you can pick Counterculture and then have a look at all the interviews I have done since Reality Check has started. I have to admit what I love is the downloadable feature that we have. I've been so busy that I struggle to catch up with interviews. And as I mentioned before, I caught up with an interview with Don and Jazz Preet from the other day that was incredible. And it's so good to be able to download those and listen to them at your leisure. So we're sort of part radio station, part sort of podcasting repository. So do make sure that you do that. Marty, thank you again. My pleasure. Have a great week. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio.